Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was joined by Dr. Bindia Gandhi. She's a double board certified integrative and functional medicine doctor who has helped thousands of women transform their overall health and improve weight loss resistance. In particular, I wanted to interview her for the podcast because of her strong interest in leptin. So we dove deep into what is leptin and why it's important. How does it work? How does it involve with bone mass regulation, immune function, balancing heart rate and blood pressure? regulating thyroid hormone, our menstrual cycles, brain protection, and the mitochondrial rich beijing of fat. We talked about testing, symptoms of leptin resistance, the role of weight loss resistance and toxic load, how to address leptin resistance, specifically stress management, intermittent fasting, and nutritionally, we really overemphasize the need to avoid and limit fructose in particular the role of detoxification, balancing the parasympathetic nervous system, as well as our adrenals and focusing in on midlife misconceptions. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I've gotten so many questions about leptin. I hope this will help answer a lot of the concerns that you have. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you today? God, well, listeners don't know this about you probably, but you are within two weeks of your delivery date with your third baby. So I'm really excited that we were able to carve out time in both our schedules to connect and talk about a very important hormone, which is leptin. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. So talk to us about, obviously you've got training and obesity management. So what got you so interested and passionate about helping patients understand metabolic flexibility, leptin resistance, and how all of these things have kind of allowed you to grow a really thriving practice in the Atlanta area. So, you know, honestly, Cynthia, I'll tell you, it kind of like essentially fell into my lap. You know, I struggled with my own medical issues in residency. You know, I thought I was really healthy in medical school. I was at an ideal weight. I ran all the time. I ate whatever, I, literally, I'm not going to lie. I was one of those girls. I could eat whatever I wanted, but I would run it off and it would be fine. Well, you got get to residency and things start changing. You're under a lot more stress. I ended up having a lot of like menstrual irregularities acne, like hormones started going awry. And I was like, what is going on? And I was still eating the same. And I was, by the way, eating healthy, even though I could eat where I wanted, it was still on the healthier side. Ended up realizing that I now I'm gaining weight. And I was like, what is going on here? I started having some early thyroid issues and it started freaking me out. Like I was like, something's not right. I remember going to like tons of doctors at my residency program and no one was able to help me. They were just giving me prescriptions. It was like um, an antifungal, anti-steroid, antiviral, antibiotic, you name it, because I was having this rash on my face that really was the 
thing that caught my attention. It was like this rash on my face that would not go away. And despite like the fact that I had acne and the fact that I had some menstrual irregularities and some migraines, it was the rash on my face that caught my attention. That was like, okay, we've got to fix these things. And I kept asking questions and they kept medicating me and I kept spending more and more money on prescriptions and nothing worked. I spent money on biopsies and procedures and nothing, no answers. It wasn't until I was seen by an allergist immunologist and I like begged myself, I begged to be seen by them. And they basically told me it was in my head. Like they were like, didn't want to do any testing, did not want to do. I kept thinking, am I deficient in something? Is this a deficiency in something? They were like, no, you're just a stressed out resident. Like you're fine. And I just remember being, that was the turning point where I was like, whoa, something is not right. Like, I can't believe that I've been in residency for, at this point, it was probably like two years, two years. And like my hormones in life have changed so drastically. I feel like crap, like something's not right. And so I ended up by the grace of God was able to, you know, find a really good functional medicine doctor, integrative doctor, worked with her, was able to identify that I had celiac, um, was able to identify that I had all these food sensitivities, some gut dysbiosis. And honestly, when I cut out the gluten, lost the weight, has kept the weight off, my thyroid issue that I had completely has been hundred percent normal since then, which is really, really good because both my parents have Hashimoto's. So It's definitely something that I was able to catch really early and have been able to kind of manage over these years naturally. And the weight has definitely stayed off. And so then when I built my practice, I started helping a lot of women with fertility, probably around the same time that I was trying to get pregnant. And I was having difficulty getting pregnant and realized there's a lot more to fertility than just (laughs) than what we think, what we're taught in medical school and so many other things that I learned about stress, thyroid, how the other hormones impact. And then I started learning more about leptin and I was like, whoa, we've got to talk about leptin here. I started learning more about how leptin impacts your thyroid, your adrenal hormones and fertility and that's where I am here today. And now I'm helping all these women, predominantly women who are, have a little bit of weight loss resistance, mainly because no one talks about leptin and no one's addressing it. Well, it's always amazing to me when clinicians go on their own healthcare journey and for you not being satisfied with kind of conventional approaches to the symptoms you were experiencing. And for listeners, once you have one autoimmune issue, so Bindia had has celiac. And so it makes you more susceptible to other autoimmune issues. And that really opens up Pandora's box, literally making you understand that it's this complex interrelationship between stress and the immune system and gut health. And so let's really start the conversation. I think most listeners have heard of leptin, but what exactly is it and why is it so important? And I want everyone to be thinking from a metabolic health perspective, because Leptin resistance, as one example, goes hand in hand oftentimes with insulin resistance. So we're going to make sure all these concepts are really clear, but let's unpack leptin because I think on a lot of levels, it's a poorly understood and appreciated hormone, but actually a really important one. Yeah. Oh yeah. I agree. So leptin is actually known as your satiety hormone and that's what most people kind of know it as, right. But it's really important because it's actually produced by your fat cells and it communicates with your brain, which is really why it's so important because it kind of lets your body know if you're full, if you need to eat, do you need to burn more calories at a faster rate at a slower rate? It's kind of essentially regulating your metabolism. And it kind of also lets you know, Hey, you need to eat more, or maybe you need to stop eating kind of essentially kind of controlling your appetite. So what ends up happening is for many reasons, predominantly in our society, the common yo-yo dieting has really messed up our metabolism. So 
you're probably aware of this. Your listeners are probably aware of this. Most females actually start dieting when they're in their teens, right? This is why eating disorders happen so early on. And it starts in our teens, we get to college, then we're maybe gaining more weight, that freshman 15, you know, our metabolism is constantly changing. Then we're like, oh my God, I'm going to get married. I need to lose all that weight again. It's like this constant fluctuation of weight gain. And because of that, that really over time, slowly messes up our metabolism, right? Our metabolism hasn't really stayed stable throughout our whole life. Then we're getting, we're pregnant and then we're postpartum. Like all these different life things start happening and slowly, slowly we start noticing that leptin, this one hormone that we could get away with eating certain things when we were younger, really is impacting how we're able to enjoy food and really kind of metabolize our body as we get older. It really starts slowing down and we start developing something called leptin resistance. And mainly it's because of this miscommunication between our brain and our fat cells that we've over time caused to ourselves. And So I think for listeners to better understand and appreciate leptin, we think of it as this key satiety hormone. And obviously the more adipose tissue or fat tissue we have on our body, the greater the likelihood we're going to have increasing amounts of leptin resistance. And it was interesting when I was prepping for our discussion today, one of the statistics I read was really interesting with low leptin, you have a fivefold increased risk of anxiety and depression. So we think about it just being an appetite regulator, but yet there are a lot of other things that leptin does that, you know, I like to think of it. It's kind of like a buffet. There's just, just about every organ in the body has a complex interrelationship with leptin. What are some of the other things that leptin can impact that people may not be as aware of? Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought this up. So we definitely don't want leptin to be high, but we certainly don't want leptin to be low. So when leptin is on the other end of the spectrum, you kind of mentioned it. anxiety is huge. Sleep disturbances is another one. The other thing that it really does impact for a lot of female, especially in their fertility years is fertility. If your leptin levels are too low, we start noticing that it impacts your ability to get pregnant your body essentially sometimes thinks that you're in starvation mode. And so it's going to hold on to every weight, any weight, it's going to slow down your metabolism. It's trying to protect you. And if it's trying to protect you, ladies, you're not going to get pregnant because that is your body doesn't think you're in a very safe place to carry a child. And so there's so many different things that really go on when it comes to leptin. So we definitely don't want it to be high, but we definitely don't want it to be low. It's again, it's one of my Goldilocks hormones. It's got to be just right. And I'm sure it's probably unique to every individual. I know when we're talking about intermittent fasting as a strategy, I remind women that your menstrual cycle is a barometer for whether or not that strategy is working for you. And so much to your point about this Goldilocks effect that, you know, you want to have just the right amount of leptin for your body. What I was surprised by when I was, you know, working on, you know, our prep for today was that it's involved in like bone mass regulation. It's involved in immune function. It, It supports our blood pressure and our heart rate, which I had no idea about, even though you know, back in the day when I was in cardiology, we thought about a lot of other hormones. We didn't think a lot about leptin impacting vital signs, but I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. You know, this is really, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because for example, when your leptin levels get really low, it starts increasing your risk of osteoporosis, osteoporosis, right? And the link there, it goes back to estrogen. There's an estrogen leptin connection. And when your estrogen levels drop, right? What happens commonly during perimenopausal, postmenopausal years, what ends up happening, you're more likely to end up being osteopenic or having brittle bones. I like 
to mention it. So there is definitely a connection with so many different things with your leptin level. It's just not talked about. And mainly because conventional medicine doesn't really do much about it. That's part of the problem, right? So, you know, I talk about leptin all day, all the time, but you know, if someone listening to this is like, I want my leptin levels checked, you know, how do I get this checked? You know, where do I stand? You can go to your primary care doctor. You can go to your OBGYN. You can go to your endocrinologist and chances are, they're probably not going to check this hormone because they're not taught about this hormone. They're not educated about this hormone. And it's not something that I learned in medical school. Unfortunately, it was something that I learned even after residency, when I did my functional medicine in-depth training. So it's not that conventional medicine, essentially, unfortunately, they don't know what to do about it. They're like, okay, so we're not going to check this because if you get a number and I, I don't know how to interpret it, it's a liability. So let's not check it at all. Consuming element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, 
me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because I've had some mold exposure. And so one of the hormones that they do test regularly on me is leptin. And so what's interesting is leptin is correlated with your body max mass index. So when you get your leptin score, usually you get, you know, here's your BMI and this is where your levels should fall between. And so I found it really interesting when I looked at that into the interrelationship of looking at mycotoxins and how my body has responded to that. And my functional medicine provider was saying, yeah, this is definitely not a hormone that most allopathic trained providers are drawing. And then there's also the confusion and you're right for anyone who's listening. It says, you know, I've had that experience. I go to my healthcare provider. They don't want to draw certain labs, even if it's something benign, like a fasting insulin, it's because we are also then responsible for those results, even if Mm -hmm. we don't know how to interpret it. So Mm -hmm. you can understand why there's a little bit of friction that goes on. But when women come to you with weight loss resistance, I assume this is one of many tests that you like to look at to determine what's going on. So when you're looking at someone who comes to you and says, I've really been struggling with weight loss resistance, maybe they have Hashimoto's, maybe they're in perimenopause or menopause. What are some of the common tests that you will do to help support your patients? So kind of in a broad approach, because obviously in the context of working with someone directly, you're going to have personalized recommendations, but what are some of the more common tests you will look at? That was a question that came up frequently when individuals knew that we were connecting today. Yeah. So you guys, I am a big data girl like that. Again, I'm like really nerdy. The more tests I'm able to get the better because I like to look at the whole pictures. I don't like to just look at one numbers. That's why a lot of times when people come to me from their endocrinologist or their primary care doctors or their GYN, whoever it is, I'm like, give me all that information. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to have a baseline. And then I'm going to order some more tests because the more information I have, the better, but I, you know, I'm going to start off with basic things like a complete thyroid panel, which has your TSH, your T3, your T4, your free T3, your total T3. I love checking antibodies because predominantly a lot of women have never had antibodies ever checked, right? I know we're not talking about thyroid health in general, but sometimes I'll have a positive antibody and have normal thyroid levels and thyroid functions, you know, so it's, it's nice to get the whole picture. So that's why I do that. I check adrenal hormones. I'm checking insulin, fasting insulin, I'm checking hemoglobin A1C different because they're checking different things. I'm checking glucose levels, your complete metabolic panel. I'm always checking an ANA, a basic ANA with reflex just to see, could you potentially have an autoimmune condition that you're unaware of? Another thing I commonly see all the time. A lot of times women, feel like crap and they've been told everything is normal, but they haven't even had a basic ANA checked. And when that ANA comes back and it's positive for something like scleroderma or rheumatoid arthritis, they're like shocked, but I'm like, no, I'm not because I'm hearing it from you in history. So, I mean, there's just some of the things. And then I get, get into like female hormones in depth. I'm checking pregnenolone, progesterone, testosterone, sex binding globulins, estrogen, and of course, leptin, you know, I mean, I'm just checking all these things and it's literally the whole picture of what is going on because all these hormones are connected and they all tell me a story of who you are, what you've been through, what you're about to go through and where you are in your life. 
I think that's super helpful because, you know, I fully am fully transparent that when I worked in cardiology as an NP, you know, we were only dealing with either emergencies or we yep. would send someone back to their primary because we were like, right. we don't manage thyroid unless you're dying. You know, sometimes there are reasons to be hospitalized for extreme thyroid problems. But other than that, cardiology, we were like, we would check a TSH, we would check a free T4. And then we were like, you're fine. And I've come to realize that that only gives part of the picture. So if you've you suspect you have a thyroid problem, you suspect, or you have confirmed Hashimoto's, or you maybe have had graves, you really do need a full thyroid panel. That's one thing I sometimes have to literally just spell it out. Like these are the labs you need to do, ask your healthcare provider to do them for you so that we can really get a comprehensive sense of what's going on. Now, something that I think is interesting when, when you're working with women that are weight loss resistant, and obviously weight loss resistance is a huge issue for middle-aged women They get very maligned. You know, they're oftentimes blown off by their healthcare professionals. I was actually told in the beginning of perimenopause that Cynthia, don't you just accept the fact that you have this extra no. five to 10 pounds. Can you believe on, that? That's so and, rude. <laughs> and it made me mad. It made me really yeah. angry. Yeah. But one thing that's important for people to understand is that sometimes weight loss resistance can be like a neurotoxic clue that you could, your body could actually be packaging up toxins you're exposed to in your environment, your personal care products, your food, and it's doing to protect you as annoying as it is to deal with weight loss resistance. Are you seeing this? I'm sure you probably are in a lot of female patients. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I I think this is, I mean, I can talk about it, but it's always more helpful to have another person talk about it, speak to this issue because we're bombarded by a very toxic environment, you know, seemingly benign things that will categorically, I kind of feel like middle age is a special point where maybe you, you know, your bucket's been filling, filling, filling all these years. And maybe it's perimenopause that tips the bucket over. And then all of a sudden they become problematic. No, I think that's really wise that we're bringing this up because people are not aware of. So let's just go back to thyroid a little bit. So when we go back to our thyroid, even though our thyroid gland is, is here by our neck, um, it's actually metabolized in our liver, right? So most of our hormones, including estrogen and leptin are metabolized in our liver, right? And that's where we need to start paying attention to our toxic load. A lot of times, even for example, triglycerides, this is the fat that's accumulated in the liver. This is usually predominantly associated with um, insulin resistance or prediabetes or that kind of thing. Everything really is going on in the liver. We're just, we don't see the liver. We don't feel the liver. We feel fine. Like we don't really know what's going on. It's kind of hard to justify what's going on in the liver. Even when I get basic, I mean, I've been doing this for a little bit while, so I can start telling trends by looking at your liver, basic liver enzymes. If your liver is starting to like act up and and start working a little bit harder, but you know, again, the average physician who's doing your CMP, which is your complete metabolic profile that has your AST, ALT and your alkaline phosphatase on there. They're looking at it and they're like, oh, it's not in the red. It's fine. I'm looking in the nitty gritty. I'm looking in the numbers and I'm like, ooh, you're in the twenties. Why are you in the twenties? Like what's going on there? Right? Like I'm being extra vigilant. So When it comes to detoxification, I'm not going to get technical, but there's phase one, there's phase two of detoxification, and it really is important. And all our hormones are literally metabolized essentially in the liver. And if we don't pay attention to our personal care products, the foods that we're eating, whether we're eating organic or not, all the pesticides that we're exposed to all the chemicals that we're inhaling. And these things are over a cumulative period of time, right? It's not just something that happened yesterday for many of us. It's things that have happened that we've been exposed through for, for many, many years. 
these things really do slow down our liver. They congest our liver. And this is one of the reasons why I actually tell people one of the foods that we need to start minimizing or restricting, especially if we think you've got leptin resistance, or we believe that your leptin level is off is fruit because the body can't tell the difference between fruit sugars and fructose, which is chemically made. And because of that, it goes straight to the liver. It congests the liver. It starts slowing things down. And when we start eliminating these toxins, which fructose technically ends up being a toxin, we start seeing direct correlation and improvement in your leptin numbers. I mean, there's so many different things that impact the liver, but specifically we know that there are studies showing that fructose or fruit sugars really does impact that. Well, I think it's really, it's very relevant because this weekend, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Rick Johnson, but I just interviewed him. He has a new book and he's kind of the fructose doctor and researcher. And we really dove into why fructose can be so incredibly toxic to our health. And I think people think of fructose as being a little benign. One of the big takeaways from my conversation with him, which I keep parroting to my teenagers who don't have soda at home, but when we go out, I have to kind of cringe. You don't want to drink your sugar and certainly not liquid fructose. It's terrible. I think you're better off having, if you're going to choose to have like a low glycemic piece of fruit versus a soda to recognize that that liquid sugar is so toxic to your body, not naturally occurring. And there's no buffer to its absorption. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a piece of, you know, if you decide to have like a tart apple, let me say tart, not sweet, not the honey crisp, a tart apple. And you have a little bit of fiber that will slow the absorption of that fructose. That's very different than having, you know, the Frappuccino of the day at Starbucks that has 50 grams of sugar, Sugar. which is awful for you in terms of health and wellness. Now, when we're talking about leptin resistance, so let's like focus a little bit on this because this is again, an area that I think is not well understood in terms of the conventional lay public. So you can have insulin resistance and you very likely also are leptin resistant, which means that they're what I always refer to is you have a starved brain with an obese body. Like these are the people that you might go into a store or a restaurant and they have a massive amount of food in front of them and they might be morbidly obese. But a lot of that is because there's this dysregulation of communication in the body. Like hormones are chemical mediators. They are chemical communicators in the body. And if they're not properly balanced and regulated, your appetite cues are not going to be like, for me, if I sit down eating a steak, I'm full. I can step away from the table, but if someone has leptin resistance, they're probably not going to crave the steak. They're probably going to crave carbohydrates. They're probably going to crave hyperpalatable foods that are kind of set or they're going to actually potentiate this dysregulation. Yeah, actually, I'm going to rewind a little bit because I think there's um, something that I really want to bring up too, because going back to like leptin, many people are listening are like, first of all, how do I know if I'm leptin resistance? You know, could I potentially have an issue going on? One of the first things I'm going to have you guys do is go to my website, drbindiamd.com forward slash quiz. And it's an 11 question quiz to kind of understand what your symptoms are, because I go through 11 questions to identify, could you potentially be leptin resistant, leptin sensitive or leptin clear, right? It's a, it'll give you a number. And then based on that, we can kind of identify which category you're, you're in. Now, it, traditionally, what I like to do is I like to test it in a perfect world if you're if you're able to see me or if you're able to go to a practitioner that's able to test it 
And then identify what that number is. Now, I love that number between seven and 10. And when that number is below three and four for females, that is not good. And when it's above 11, 12, then it's also problematic, right? One of the things, like you mentioned earlier, when we talk about um, leptin, usually it's correlated with your body mass index, but that's not always a fair correlation because, you know, we have people that body mass index traditionally is based on your height and your weight. It's a calculation that gets spit out. But if you have more muscle mass on you, it's not, or even like water weight, it's not accurate. So there's a lot of like nuances with when that number is reported as well. Now, when we're talking about insulin resistance, insulin resistance is usually based on your hemoglobin A1C, right? Hemoglobin A1C usually between 5.7 and 6.4 is when you're considered insulin resistance. When you're 6.5 and above, you're actually in that diabetes zone, which is, you know, something that we're trying to avoid. I have seen in practice where you can still be leptin resistance without being insulin resistance. And I've also seen the opposite where you can be insulin resistant as well as being leptin resistant. So there's definitely a direct correlation with your appetite, with your metabolic function for sure. But for some people, sometimes that there is no correlation, right? So that's the first thing that I want to say. The other thing that I want to kind of mention too is there is a very strong correlation between your sugar carb cravings. And that's why when you do my 11 question quiz, there's a, that's one of the questions is, are you gravitating towards sugar carbs and sweets? A lot of times people think of, and here's the thing. A lot of times people think of like, oh, well, I don't eat desserts. So I'm not eating, I don't think I'm craving carbs or I don't think so. But what about the other foods that you're eating? What about the fruit? Okay. Fruit is considered sugar essentially. What about all the rice, the beans, the pasta? You know, there's so many other foods that are carbier, right? So you may not be eating key lime pie every day. You may not be eating chocolate or, you know, desserts every day, but you're still gravitating towards carbs and you're, you're eating more of that than protein. So there is a correlation there with your appetite. And that's where the whole thing with um, leptin is really important because leptin does essentially control your appetite. Leptin lets us know we need to be eating more, eating less. And so that's where the insulin resistance, if you're more likely to be insulin resistant, you're more likely to also be leptin resistance based on the foods that you're eating. It's really interesting because we're not saying that carbohydrates are bad. We're saying that our cravings can oftentimes be an indication that we may have some degree of hormonal dysregulation. And it's interesting, you know, it could be as simple as I know that you probably do gut microbiome testing. I use the GI map. And if I really think someone has candida, there are other types of tests I can do beyond that but it's always very interesting and quite humbling when you yourself find out I've done a lot of travel, especially even during the pandemic, we've done quite a bit of travel. I picked up a parasite or two um, and also picked up some candida. And what's interesting is I actually said to my integrative medicine doc, I was like, I don't have those kinds of cravings. And she said, not everyone with candida as an example necessarily is craving carbs. Like it's their job. And it might be for you. It might be, maybe you're craving a little more root vegetable, but you know, whatever's going on with the gut microbiome can also govern a lot of the food choices we're making because the gut microbiome, if it's, especially if it's dysbiotic or unhealthy bacteria, I would say weeds in the garden it may cause us, or it'll create the hospitable environment that it's going to crave a certain type of fuel source. And that could very well be the carbohydrates. But I just wanted to tie that in to say that you can have disruptions in the gut microbiome that can drive a lot of those food choices as well. And, and I would imagine there's lots of patients that have 
leptin, insulin resistance, and have significant gut microbiome yes. imbalances. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that we're looking at when we're, or a lot of things that we're paying attention to when it comes to treating leptin gut microbiome is definitely one detoxification is another one. Inflammation is the other one. So, you know, most people again are walking around with elevated CRPs, homocysteine, ferritin, and even what we call something sedrate, and they're unaware of it. You know, sometimes people are aware because they feel crappy and they're like, I feel awful. But again, the traditional conventional doctor is not checking some of these levels. Right. But markers of inflammation also tell us what is going on with the body, what is going on with your gut microbiome, how you're actually feeling. Cause sometimes that's a precursor to, yeah, you probably do have an autoimmune issue that you're unaware of. And that's, what's causing the inflammation. Sometimes it's your gut microbiome is causing the inflammation like candida. And sometimes it could be inflammation because you've got, you know, an underlying cardiac event that's about to happen or metabolic issues that are going on. So there's so many reasons for inflammation, but this is something that I also particularly check in with labs as well, because inflammatory markers tell me a whole story and it's really important to pay attention to those. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up that, you know, inflammation equals oxidative stress equals mitochondrial dysfunction. And most people North of 40 have some degree of mitochondrial dysfunction. And if you have a chronic disease, you definitely have mitochondrial dysfunction yep. and, and to back up a little bit, the mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. And, yeah. you know, we're really speaking down to each individual cell. If it's not properly generating the right amount of energy through the right pathway, which out without getting super overcomplicated, you know, if those cells are not generating the right amount of energy at the right time, it can also can contribute to some of the symptoms that you very likely are seeing fatigue, you know, lacking energy, making you more susceptible to certain chronic diseases. So how do we actually address leptin resistance. What are some of the first things you kind of like broad concepts that you kind of work on? You mentioned already detoxification, reduction of inflammation, the gut yeah. microbiome. What are some of the other strategies that you use within your practice to help with this? So one of the big things that I end up doing, cause I, again, I clinically see this is I really help with stress management. So stress management really is a big deal. Now, we'll talk about this because, you know, you're the intermittent fasting guru, you know, even with intermittent fasting, we have hormetic stressors, right? That is still some stress on the body. And so when we're constantly in a state of stress, because maybe we're going through a divorce or maybe because, you know, our mom is really sick and in the hospital, whatever life stressors are throwing, or you're transitioning between jobs or wherever you are in your life, understand that that is a big stress. That's not only going to impact your metabolism in general, but that's also going to start impacting your thyroid function. And this is why we need to really address the thyroid from function from a different perspective. And so when you start doing things that you think you're really healthy and things that you did when in your twenties, where you could run six miles a day, seven days a week, when you're doing that at 42, your body cannot handle it like it did, right? You're adding more stress to your body. And so this is why one of the big things that I work on with my patients and my clients is stress reduction from different angles, whether it's we're incorporating yoga, meditation, maybe we're Oftentimes you guys, you guys think I'm crazy when I tell you this, when I actually say we've got to work out less, right? Cause it's literally reducing the stress load on your body, but there's so many different angles that we really kind of have to address when it comes to what is causing stress and how our thyroid is being in how our thyroid is interpreting our metabolism. But more importantly, that T3 free T3 correlation to leptin is very direct. And we need to make sure that we're balancing that appropriately Otherwise, it's harder to kind of bring our leptin and our other metabolism hormones down. 
At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think it's a really important distinction to make that we're not saying no exercise. We're saying less intense exercise. I find a lot of women north of 40, not picking on anyone, but if you're exercising at 45 or 50, like you did at 25 or 30, you very likely are 
exercising in a way that is going to contribute to dysregulation of these hormones. I use the best example. I used to live in Northern Virginia and had lived in a beautiful neighborhood. And I would see these women and I'd lived in this neighborhood for almost 20 years. So over those years, the same women running the same five to 10 miles every single day, start looking haggard. They start telling me that they have all this truncal or abdominal obesity. They're, they're struggling with weight loss and it's because their cortisol is up in response to this exercise. This is not saying exercise is bad, but you have to do different types of exercise. And as a personal example, Saturday night, we were flying back from Utah from a business trip. We got on a long layover in Chicago. We didn't land in our new city until 1am. And we sat on the tarmac for 45 minutes while (sighs) our poor pilot was trying to communicate to get a gate for us so we could deplane. And so, you know, I got about five hours of sleep uh, Saturday into Sunday and I set my alarm last night. I was like, okay, I'm going to bed early. I'm going to get up and go to the gym. Well, at six o'clock, my body did not want to get out of bed. And so the old me would have pushed myself out of bed, would have yep. gone to the gym, would have slogged through a strength training workout and come home. And instead I let myself sleep an extra hour. So the distinction is you have to be smart about how you're exercising, when you're exercising. And for most, if not all women, I find as we're getting older, we have to just be more conscientious about you know, where we are in our menstrual cycles, where are we dealing with, you know, is there extra stress? You have a family member that's sick. You have a kid that's sick. Your husband's traveling, whatever it is that's going on, just be leaning into that and really giving yourself grace. Because I think as women, we tend to do a tremendous, tremendous disservice to ourselves because we're constantly pushing. It's like, you know, the rushing woman syndrome, which is a syndrome I'd never heard of before until I interviewed Dr. Mindy Peltz and she brought it up. And there's a great book out there talking exactly about this. And most women probably listening to this podcast could probably benefit from reading that book as well. But the point I'm trying to make is I'm completely in agreement and alignment that we need to do less. We actually will be healthier if we do less and we aren't pushing ourselves all the time. Like there's no shame in sitting on the couch and like binge watching something on Hulu or reading a book or skipping a workout when, you know, what needs to be facilitated is that your body feels safe and relaxed and you are tapping into that parasympathetic. So autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic, parasympathetic is the rest and repose side. Sympathetic is the, I'm being chased by a a rabid animal And yes, it's important to have both, but most people are stuck in that sympathetic overdrive and not enough parasympathetic, which allows us to digest food and be relaxed. And for anyone that wears an aura ring, this is one of the things that allows me to stay really attuned to how stressed is my body, really looking at those data marks. And I'm not suggesting everyone has to do that, but what I found really interesting when I was you know, prepping for our conversation are the things that can tap us into the parasympathetic that are completely free. And don't require anything. You don't have to buy an aura ring, but I think some of my like favorite ways are like gargling, humming, Mm -hmm. singing, you know, breathing, like breathing is, I think breath work is really important. Laughter, all of these things. And I'm sure they're probably items that you discuss with your patients. Do you find that most of your patients are surprised to know that there are simple things they can be doing to support the parasympathetic nervous system? Yeah, I definitely think so. And honestly, you know, we really need to start catering towards improving our adrenal health in general, because it really is important, you know, kind of like you mentioned earlier, you know, I've been fortunate. I can kind of test on myself over the last few years, but I'll tell you this, 
what ends up happening for so many females is they're not sleeping at night, which then causes sugar cravings. It then causes them to want to eat a little bit more carbs the next day. Then they're pushing themselves because they're in a very stressful job situation. And all these different things start impacting your blood sugars. It starts impacting your cortisol production and then impacts your leptin metabolism. So it's really important to kind of say, okay, where do I need to slow down? What can I do during the day? Do I need to take five minutes to just like breathe and like go for a walk? Or do I need to just like journal for a couple minutes? Do I just need to like sing to like my favorite 90 song? Like whatever it is that you need to do. Like it's, but it's essentially the, the free things that I tell people, think about when you were younger and money wasn't a factor. What brought you joy? Was it reading? Was it writing? Was it just like drawing and doodling? Like think about those things that you did that really just kind of gave you that inner spark. Go back to that because that is what your soul really needs and is asking for. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that we give ourselves the opportunity to really investigate that. I think it's hard when we have little people at home. I know certainly yeah. 10 years ago when my kids were four and six, they're now 14 and 16. There was a lot less time for me to think about those things. Now I'm at a different stage with my kids. And so I kind of lean into the things that I find joyful. And that's very different for each one of us. I definitely want to make sure we talk about the nutrition piece because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, whether it's leptin or ghrelin or, you know, thyroid issues, what are some of your tips as it pertains to, you know, making sure we are working towards better anti-inflammatory choices? What's your area of focus that you'd like to do in terms of leptin concerns? Yeah. So I definitely, you know, for generalization, we'll say a couple things, minimize your fruit consumption. And everybody, again, thinks I'm crazy when I say that, but especially if you think that eating four pieces of fruit a day is good. I will say guys, keep it to low glycemic fruits. If you enjoy fruit, keep it to low glycemic fruit and try to eat it in the morning when your metabolism is the highest. Usually if you're breaking your fast around breakfast is what I would say. And I stick to berries, right? People get in trouble when they start doing fruit salads and they're eating like, they're kind of using fruit as a substitution for that sweet unhealthy, you know, dessert that they really want. Like, oh, I'm going to eat like a fruit after lunch. I'm going to eat a fruit after dinner. You know, it's kind of like, don't do that. Like if you, and there's, again, we've talked about this. There's so many great properties of fruits, a lot of antioxidants, a lot of polyphenols, a lot of great stuff, fiber too. So not all fruit is bad, but understand your hormones, where you are and to kind of identify, okay, how much fruit can my body get away with? That's the first thing that I would say. The other thing that I really would encourage is, you know, Minimally, a 12-hour fast is completely appropriate. Every day, just resetting your body for 12 hours, completely appropriate. Especially for us females, we can get into trouble if we're doing longer fasts, if we're doing 24-hour fast, 36-hour fast, even for some of us, 18-hour fast, especially if we're doing that five days a week. So understand your fasting cycle. And I know you talk about this a lot, but understand who you are, what you can get away with, what you can't get away with. I love what you say, but pay attention to your menstrual cycle females. Sometimes it's harder to pay attention to your menstrual cycles, especially if you're like postmenopausal or you're in that perimenopausal and you're like, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to have a cycle this month or not. Right. Like I totally understand that, but pay attention to your energy, pay attention to if you're now fatigued, if you're fasting, if you're now exhausted, if you can't get through a workout because you're like, oh my God, or now you're going to bed a lot earlier and you're feeling more sluggish. So start paying attention to you because many of us are not paying attention to that. So 
minimally 12 hour fast is completely safe, completely fine and very appropriate. And the other thing that I actually highly recommend that a lot of people do that we're not doing enough of, and I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I'm even guilty of this because I've got young kids, but not a good reason is we're not eating enough protein. We're just not eating enough protein. So we need to make sure we're eating protein throughout the day three meals a day with protein. Like there needs to be some sort of protein in that meal. Ask yourself, is there greens? The three things I ask myself at every meal, is there greens in this meal? Okay, good. Is there protein? Okay, good. Is there enough healthy fats and fiber? Great. Okay. I'm probably a good, decent meal, right? When you've got young kids and you're on the go and you've got picky eaters, sometimes things can get complicated, but there needs to be some sort of protein. And you know what? We have, we're at a place in our life where we have a lot of good plant-based protein too. So you don't have to necessarily go ahead and eat animal protein, but there needs to be some sort of protein at your meal. Maybe that means you're getting more beans and more lentils. Maybe you're adding additional collagen, bone broth, whatever it is, there needs to be protein at every single meal to slow down um, digestion a little bit, to regulate your blood sugars, but more importantly, to regulate your metabolism and to fix leptin. I love that you brought up the fruit piece. It's interesting. There's a a young woman that I follow on Instagram and she's lost a lot of weight, which is incredible. And she's maintained a significant weight loss, but every time she talks about what she eats in a day, every single meal or snack is honest to God. It's like, there's a piece of fruit involved. And I just think like, that's not a sustainable strategy, but a lot of people are fruit addicted. I use the best example there was a lovely diabetic cardiovascular patient that I had for many years. And I sent him to the registered dietitian. I was like, okay, I don't have enough time to talk to you about nutrition, but let's send you to the expert. And he came back and he was telling me about his experience and how great it was. And so I said, okay, well, let's like, tell me what you eat in a day. This man was a diabetic who already had a sugar handling problem. And he was eating six bananas a day. Oh my God. I'm and cringing. I said, <laughs> if you have a sugar handling problem, this is for anyone. If you are insulin resistant or diabetic, you should not be eating six pieces of fruit a day. Like maybe you have a quarter cup of berries and that's like your allotted fruit for the day. But a lot of people, and I agree with you wholeheartedly swap out their addiction to candy and ice cream with consuming a lot of fruit and it's still a fruit sugar. It is still something that, especially if you're leptin insulin resistant or suspect that you are, you really have to monitor that. It doesn't mean never. It just means you make the best choices in small quantities. I do think it's really important that you brought up the over fasting piece because for a lot of women, they assume that if fasting, a little bit of fasting is good, then a lot of fasting is better. And I regularly am answering, or my team and I are answering questions in the DMs, in our groups. And I I sometimes have to ratchet it back and just remind people like, maybe you need to do a 14 hour fast. And maybe you only fast two weeks out of the month because you're, you know, you're perimenopausal and, you know, you're really struggling around your menstrual cycle, or especially if you're peak fertile years, you know, Dr. Bindia is, is a prime example. She's still in her peak fertility years. She would not be a candidate to fast every single day. 12 hours of digestive rest is completely appropriate. I think the challenge is, is that a lot of women over fast in a desperate attempt. And I say desperation with love. I'm not using it as judgment. A lot of women are so desperate to lose weight that they're like, if I can just fast longer, it equates with, I'm going to lose more weight and that's going to make me happier. And I think that's a really that's, important distinction. And I think that's really great to bring up too, because a lot of times, and this is, again, we'll, uh, this is 
to tie it back to leptin, a lot of times when you start fasting, what you're really doing is you're cutting your calories significantly over time. And initially most women, whether they're doing 14 hour fast or now they're doing, you know, 36 hour fast, they're like, I feel amazing. I've lost all this weight. Great. But what ends up happening is you then hit a weight loss stall, right? For so many females, probably maybe within a month, they feel great. They've initially lost that weight that they want to lose, but then they hit this plateau. And what ends up happening is because you quickly and drastically cut your calories, your body now thinks you're starving. And that's where that miscommunication with leptin starts happening because it's like, whoa, your body doesn't know when you're going to get fed again. Your body doesn't know when your next meal is going to come. Your body doesn't know, you know, what's going to happen next. So it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to like save every single ounce of calorie that we get. Let's store it because she may never feed me again. Or I don't know if my next meal is going to be in 36 hours or, or 48 hours. Right. So this is also where females really get into trouble when we're doing prolonged fasting all the time and excessively. And this is one of the things that are really slowing our metabolism over time. It's finding that fine balance of how can we be metabolic flexible? When can I eat more? When can I eat less? And correlating that back to what's also going on in your life at that time. Like we mentioned earlier, if you have a lot going on, guys, maybe you hold off on fasting. It's okay. It's not the end of the world, right? But it's finding that balance of what works for me, where I am in my life today and tomorrow. I think that's a really important point to make. And certainly don't compare yourself to what everyone else is doing. Just do what works for you. There's no shame whatsoever in taking a break. I'm very transparent. In 2019, when I was hospitalized for 13 days, I did not fast for months and months and months because I just was not in a position to add another stressor to my body that was already overstressed. Now I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to wrap things up today, talking a little bit about, you know, midlife misconceptions. So most of the women that are listening to this podcast are North of 35, North of 40. And so what are some of the common misconceptions you as a clinician see with your patients, things that people find surprising that are obvious perhaps to your eye, but things that they're probably not thinking about enough. To me, this is probably an easy one, but you know, there's a big misconception when it comes to weight loss that it's calorie in, calorie out. That's a huge misconception. It's not just calorie in, calorie out, you know, and I'll give you an example of, again, stuff I could get away with in my twenties. I couldn't get away with in my thirties. I know that doesn't sound like that many years are different, but I'll give you the example of, you know, if I wanted to lose a few pounds in my twenties, I would just run a little bit more. I could go on the special K diet, you know, or the <laughs> slim fast little shake for a couple of days and I could drop some pounds. That doesn't work when you're older. And the reason why is because not only are there different hormones that are playing into your life, but also the macronutrients and the foods that you're eating really do impact your nutrient metabolism. So all the things of calorie in calorie out, it does not make sense as we get older when you're younger. Again, when you have, you're technically more metabolic, flexible, when you're able, your stress load is a little bit less, you're able to get away with a lot of stuff. You're not when you're younger, uh, we're not when you're older. And that's a big misconception. The other big misconception. And again, I've fallen into this trap when I was in my twenties and I could get away with it over exercising in your twenties. You don't need to do that when you're in your forties and when you're older. And the reason is, is because you know, your metabolism is different and we need to pay attention to our body. So do things that you enjoy. And if you enjoy running, I, by all means do it, but you don't need to run 10 miles a day. 
find that balance. Maybe you're just running three miles a day. Maybe you're mixing your runs with walks. Maybe you're mixing your runs with some yoga sessions or some bar classes or some high intensity training, whatever it is, it's finding balance. And, and I think that's really key as we get older, especially from working out perspective, we don't need to work out seven days a week and we don't need to run 10 miles a day like we used to. And, and again, that's obvious to me, but if you had told me this, if we had had this same conversation when I was in our twenties, I would have ignored you. I'm not going to lie. I would have ignored you because I enjoyed running and it was what gave me joy. And it was something that I loved doing. Same thing. I was a big hot yoga Ashtanga girl, but you know, all that intense yoga that I was doing, you know, worked for me when I was younger. It doesn't work for me that I'm older. I need a different type of yoga flow. I think it's all about honoring who we are as individuals at every stage of life. And I'm so very grateful that we were able to connect prior to your baby being born. Let listeners know how to connect with you. You have an amazing podcast. How can they take your quiz and find out more about leptin concerns? Yeah, for sure. So everything is under Dr. Bindi MD. So it's D-R- B-I-N-D-I-Y-A-M-D on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm not really active on Twitter, but you know, if you want to follow us, I do. My website is www.drbindiamd.com. And I do have a free leptin quiz. You guys definitely need to take this quiz. It really just puts things into perspective for you. It's Dr. Bindia. MD forward slash quiz. We have a new, if you end up finding out that you do have um, leptin resistance, I highly recommend that you do our new metabolism makeover course. It's a 30 day course that you can start and do anywhere at your own time to just reset your leptin levels. Because again, many people, first of all, are not getting this number checked by their primary care doctor, but understanding, okay, this does sound like me. Let's talk about these things. We didn't even really talk about this, Cynthia, because there's so much to talk about leptin and your gut dysbiosis and your microbiome. But you know, if you've got like food allergies, food sensitivities and all that other stuff, it really does impact inflammation. And that really disrupts your gut hormones as well. So we take care of all of this in 30 days and help reset your metabolism. So you can definitely follow me there. You can definitely, you know, purchase the course and do so much more. I mean, it's a whole world that unfortunately so many people are just not aware of. And I'm hoping that to continue to bring more education where people can feel empowered to say, you know what, I need to get this leptin level checked. I need to follow this number and I need to improve it because I know improving this is going to improve so many other things. Awesome. Well, I know that my listeners will find this conversation truly invaluable. Thank you again for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. 
Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.